My homily text is taken from Luke chapter 22. You'll find it on page 882 in the Pew Bible. Starting with the 39th verse. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and praying, prayed, saying, Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, He came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Let's pray. O Holy Spirit, open our mind, uh, the, the eyes of our minds and hearts that we might see our Savior through this passage, this inspired passage. We pray that we would see his glory and that this would honor and glorify him. In his name we come. Amen. This text has a passage in the letters of Paul that is a commentary on it. I refer to the text that I'm, I put in the bulletin for later use as the assurance of pardon after confession. It was a text that was very familiar to me because my father regularly used it when us siblings were quarreling. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, 
as God in Christ forgave you. That's where my dad stopped. It goes on. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Commentary on what I just read to you about the Garden of Gethsemane after the upper room discourse, just before his trial and persecution. And this Ephesians text has the advantage of putting it into the context of Monday, Thursday. Maybe some of you remember from last year, our pastor Mike preached on the new commandment commandment coming from the Latin, uh, mandatum, from which we, of course, get mandate, commandment, a new commandment I give unto you. How can we keep that commandment? By observing our Savior, the way that he went to the cross and presented himself to the Father, a fragrant offering and sacrifice. In my church in New Jersey, there was a contemporary song that we used to love to sing. I put it in fairly often. I haven't heard uh, or observed Andy Pickett yet. It's a Graham Kendrick song. Meekness and majesty. Manhood and deity. In perfect harmony. The man who is God. Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. Father's pure radiance, perfect in innocence, yet learns obedience to death on a cross, suffering to give us life, conquering through sacrifice, and as they crucify, praise, Father, forgive. Meekness and majesty that characterize the ministry of our Savior. Think about the meekness with which he reached out to Jairus' daughter, dead, Talitha Kum. Up, little girl. Think about the majesty as he confronts the Pharisees with their hypocrisy. Think about the meekness with which he joins in the tears of Martha and Mary in one minute. And in the very next minute, he's shouting with a strong voice at the mouth of the gravesite, Lazarus, come forth. And what about when he's on his way to Jerusalem and some Jewish authorities want to get him out of there and they said, leave this place, Herod wants to come and kill you. 
He responds simply, I'm on my way today, tomorrow, and the next. I'll do what I'm called to do. Go tell that fox, I'm on my way, and I will do what I'm called to do. And then the next thing you see on that journey to Jerusalem, he's weeping over Jerusalem. I want to suggest to you tonight that we see both the meekness and the majesty of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We might say weakness. I've been struggling to find a better word than weakness. And I can't. The weakness of Jesus there as he wrestles in prayer before his father. He was weak in his humanity, even as he was even as he was meek. Um, I'm going to handle the, all of the Gospels' treatment of this, not just the Luke passage I read. But Luke says that there in the garden, he was in agony, praying earnestly. And Luke's the only one that reports that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Luke's the only one that reports that in his weakness an angel from heaven was sent to strengthen him. That's why I had the uh, courage to even use the word weakness to apply to Jesus because Luke's text says he needed strengthening. Matthew uses the words sorrowful and troubled where Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain and watch with me. And then, of course, both Mark and Luke, Matthew and Mark report that three times he goes away and comes back to his disciples. But Mark is, as often, the most vivid of the, of the gospel writers. In our ESV, Mark says he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. King James has, he began to be sore amazed, very seriously amazed, and to be very heavy. The word that's used there is a word that's used rarely and used only by Mark. And here's how one scholar um, puts it. It denotes a being in the grip of a shuddering horror, in the face of a dreadful prospect before it. It's passive. Something came upon him. He saw in a way that apparently he had not seen before the horror that he was about to undergo. He was alarmed. And he was just beginning to understand what it really meant that he would be 
pierced for our transgressions, that he would be crushed for our iniquities, that he would be identifying with sinners, that he himself would be subject to the wrath of a holy God on sin. You ever imagined what it would be like to take one of your many sins and find yourself in the presence of a holy God and to try to say, I'm sorry. Forgive me. To explain it. What did Jesus have to do? He had to stand before the almighty holy judge with the sins of all of the sheep for whom he died and give an account of them. That's why Jesus was horrified. Suddenly overcome with agony and distress such that there was nothing anything, anywhere else in the Bible like this. Not in any of the laments of the Psalter. Not in any of the complaints of Job. Not in what we can imagine that Hebrew narrator leaves us to imagine what was in Abraham's mind as he went to Mount Moriah with his son Isaac to sacrifice. That even Abraham's experience would not compare to Jesus. Not Jeremiah weeping over the destruction of Jerusalem. No, nothing. And all of human experience can compare with what Jesus faced there as he readied himself to take upon himself the sins of his people. I move on to the second point. After all, this is just supposed to be a homily. Majesty. He's done praying. He's wrestled with the Almighty. He said, not my will, but thine be done. And what's next? His betrayer is there with the crowd. Now I can imagine that this is what Judas had imagined what would happen and what the priestly authorities imagined what had happened. It's dark. Judas recognizes Jesus. Goes right up there. He says, I kiss him, you grab him. Done. We hardly need to worry about the rest of the disciples. On the last point, they were right. On the first point, who takes control in the garden? Jesus does. Jesus is majestically in control, even as he has taken prisoner. John's Gospel uh, records that as the crowd comes, Jesus Stands up and says, Whom seek you? Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus responds, I am he. 
I wonder what that would have sounded like if we knew Aramaic or we knew the Greek or whatever they were speaking. It would reflect the ancient way in which God described himself. I am he. There are times in our spiritual lives when we are overwhelmed with the power, the mystery, the transcendence of something holy, something powerful, something we can't really grasp. I think that's what happened in the garden. And what's next? His would-be arresters are on the ground. They're not doing their duty. You know who calls them to their duty? Jesus. Get up. Whom do you want? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. If you want me, let these others go. Who's in control? Who's in majestic control? Who is presenting himself? a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, then Jesus is. But there's more in the majesty there. There's the way in which his own disciples get it wrong again. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? As if they had any chance. But Peter goes ahead anyway, withdraws his knife, Takes a swing and misses, but manages to slice an ear off. Giving the Romans a good excuse why they should take this violent mob. Just precisely what was not needed. Jesus says, stop it. Or some words to that effect. Enough. (laughs) And then quietly and calmly heals the guy. Jesus was majestically in control. Then there's something more. Amongst that crowd to arrest him were the high priests, the religious authorities. And he admonishes them too. I was regularly with you in the temple day after day. And you never touched me. Cowards. You got to do it at night. You got to do it with swords and clubs. How many of those who heard those words of rebuke later turned to become his followers? Don't you really look forward to finding out in heaven? I do. Well, what was Jesus doing here? He was doing whatever was appropriate to set in motion his being a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There's a little bit more. And the reason I picked this passage is where I come to now. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. That grabbed me. 
Because all through John's gospel we read about my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. And then towards the end of John's gospel we get my hour has come. So why does Luke say your hour? Jesus had wrestled in the garden. Jesus had accepted the cup that was given him. And in Mark's gospel, the petition that Jesus gave, he asked that both the cup pass from him and the hour pass from him. What is Jesus talking about? The hour. It's a apocalyptic. It's about the end of time. You see, in the events of the cross, the end time arrives. Not completely, but it already arrives. And this is the hour when sin will be judged. This is the hour when Satan the great usurper, will be cast out. And this is an hour that is his hour. It is their hour, those that attack Jesus. And it is your hour, if you are in Christ Jesus. Because that in that hour, your sin were identified with your Savior. And they are no longer yours. In that hour, the evil one is brought to destruction. The powers of darkness are ultimately judged. They rage in accordance with the prophecy that was given in the Garden of Eden when the Lord cursed the serpent and said the seed of the woman will crush, uh, uh, you will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will crush your head. Jesus knew that he had to suffer in order that the evil one be vanquished. Jesus' hour, their hour, the enemies of Christ, but your hour in which the Son of God, the Son of Man, gave himself up, a sacrifice and a fragrant offering for you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father in heaven, for sending your Son. You let Abraham withhold his hand from his son Isaac. You did not spare your own son. Thank you, Jesus, that you went all the way, not your will, but your Father's will 
Thank you, Holy Spirit, for helping us to understand this and apply it to our hearts. So we praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our God, in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.